Welcome to Breaking News with Ben Hunt, Jack Forehand, and Matt Ziegler. Before we start, let me remind you what the show is not. Breaking News is not a show about fact-checking. Breaking News is not a show about saying whose bias is the one and only correct bias. And Breaking News is definitely not a show about calling out fake news. Breaking News is a show where we look at today's top stories and have a conversation around our favorite critical question, why am I reading this now? Drawing on the headlines we're tracking at fiatnews.com, join us as we talk about what's collectively making us tick with clear eyes, full hearts, and this obligatory disclaimer. Nothing in this podcast is advising you to buy or sell any security or to do anything with your money. Seriously, you should only act on investment advice from someone you know and someone who knows your unique situation. We are not that person. Welcome back to Breaking News. We've we've got another doozy of a topic, I feel like, this week, guys. Uh, Jack, Ben, welcome. Glad you're here with me. Good to be Good here. Good with you, Matt. Jack? So, we're still talking about Israel. We're mm-hmm. still talking about what's going on. And because it's such a theme of talking about these narrative structures, these narrative archetypes and how political entrepreneurs use and shape them, and it impacts all of our lives directly and indirectly. Ben, maybe we could start here. Let's just talk about how how is Israel as a storytelling organization broadcasting what they're dealing with right now, both to their people, their allies, and those they're coming for. Talk a little bit about that strategy. Yeah, I, there are two aspects I want to talk about today, Matt. Uh, the first is what you just alluded to. So, so what do we want to say about Israel's crafting of a story? And the answer to that is I'm now of the opinion they don't care that they are, uh, that they're not, they're not crafting a story. And we can talk about why and the implications and the like. But the other thing I really wanted to talk about today was to step back and talk a bit about how all governments throughout, like, you know, as long as we've had yeah, you know, mass media, and so long as governments have cared about what their population thought, which is, call it, I don't know. So, yeah, Napoleon. I, I, I kind of point to Napoleon as the, the start of all that. Uh, so long as governments have cared, they've made efforts when conflict breaks out, sometimes as part of an overarching strategy and in their international relations, often because it's an opportunity. And what I wanted to talk about was, yes, Israel's crafting or not crafting or not caring about the message, uh, and talk about how other countries, in particular adversaries, the United States, China, Russia, care very deeply. And how you can, as a consumer of news, look for the fingerprints of other big, powerful nations that are trying to astroturf, create a fake grassroots support for their conflict and unrest in their strategic adversaries, i.e. the United States. 
So this, those are the two topics I want to talk about, kind of stepping back, talking about how governments take a very active role in this. And, uh, you know, what we're kind of seeing as we look at this in narrative terms. I'm just curious, can, can Israel not care about this at all? I'm just thinking, you know, Israel, and, and you were pointing out before we started uh, recording that, you know, Israel may be more self, you know, self-sufficient than something like Ukraine. So maybe they don't have to, but it does seem like they, to some extent, depend on the support of someone like United States. And so if the, if the narrative gets to the point that the United States is losing its own people in support of this, and so the United States support waivers to some degree, I mean, does Israel have to care about the narrative to some degree here, or can they just go this on their own? I think they care, but I also think that, and I'm basing this on the strike on the uh, North Gazan uh, refugee camp. I get it. Hamas hides behind this. I get it. There was a Hamas facility there, I'm sure, in the tunnels there. I get it. And yet, and yet, to bomb the hell out of a refugee camp to get at valid war combatants, that tells me that Israel at a strategic level is well beyond uh, we want to construct this in a way that is most palatable for um, foreign consumption, meaning that our allies will either be with us or they won't. The rest of the world isn't going to be with us regardless of what story we tell. And so we are going to take as our dominant strategy that we are going to wage war and we are going to kill Hamas, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think we can, let's figure there was, you know, a thousand no donors and rapists who did what they did on October 7th. Let's figure, I don't know, that they were supported by another 12, 20,000 um, Hamas functionaries or officials in various capacities. And I think that what Israel has made the dice, you know, it's a dominant game decision, right? Meaning, well, this is it. I, I mean, <laughs> That there's no, there, there's no two ways about it, that we are going to kill certainly the 1,000 murderers and rapists, and uh, we're, we're actually going to try to kill all, whatever, twelve to 20,000 other Hamas officials, no matter what. No matter what. Can you just comment on that, the dominant profess, professorial hat? Yeah, 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 like... Just in game theory terms. Sure. So just in game theory terms, because I think this is one of the realizations I'm learning, seeing in a new way in this conflict. Israel in this position doesn't have to worry about as much about the opinion of the judgment, the opinion, the the media, the New York Times or the CNN or the Fox or whoever's coverage of this in a way, like they have to do what they feel like they need to do. And until somebody else challenges that dominant position in a dominant way, 
that just gets swept, not swept under the rug, but it's not part of their strategy card. That's right. So, so, you know, game theory is strategic interaction. And it means that what, what I do depends on what I think you're going to do and what you do depends on what you think I'm going to do. You know, this is back and forth. This is, you know, you, you know, there's some great movies talk about the lion and winter is my favorite. If you've never seen it, Catherine Hepburn, anyway, there's some good lines in there about game theory. I know that you know that I know that you know we're a very knowledgeable family. That's, that, that's game theory. A dominant strategy is when your action does not depend on what the other person does, what the other players do. You're going to do it. it it's no longer a strategic interaction. It's a non-strategic interaction. At strategic simply meaning what I do depends on what you do. So and, and this to me, that attack on the refugee center, that to me was as clear evidence as you can get that we don't care. And like I say, I get it, but I also uh, don't get it. Right. I, I think that in, in narrative world, I think Israel, um, lost a lot of allies with that. And, uh, and, and I think they recognized that they would. So is part, is part of the like collateral damage in a way of a non-strategic interaction then like the, the shrapnel from these activities create all these stories that if they don't matter to their dominant strategy, their game, then the way that this can get spun by everybody else, who's like, everybody else can make up whatever story they want to make about it and frame it. Well, I actually think it's much more akin to what happens, what a strategy has to be in what's called total war, right? I, again, another concept that goes back to Napoleon. Right. So Napoleon invented the draft, the popular draft, changed the world, invented that, right? Uh, changed the way that war was fought, changed the notion that a war could be a total war where all of society is focused on that nationalist identity and the devotion of all resources to the successful prosecution of that, of that conflict. That's total war. And when I say that this reminds me of that, I think about the United States firebombing Tokyo. I think about the United States dropping a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. I think about the Allied bombing of, of, of Dresden and Cologne. Uh, I also think about the 15,000 rockets that Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah have fired on Israel Hooper, over the last few weeks, right? Dad, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not taking sides here. What I'm saying is that when a government decides on total war, 
then nothing is off limits. Nothing can check the dominant strategy of prosecuting that total war to a successful conclusion. Hamas sees this as total war. My, my view, based on what happened with the attack on the, the bombing of the refugee center, is that now Israel sees this as total war. Uh, and I, I think that you wouldn't say reflections of that in the way the rest of the world treats it, but this was very clear to me that this was a declaration of total war uh, by Israel. I wonder too, and I might be wrong about this, that if Israel just doesn't just recognize that the narrative war was, was effectively unwinnable for them. You know, if you think about, I mean, they've got a, a terrorist organization embedded in a civilian population, you know, what they're going to have to do militarily if they want to completely eliminate Hamas is going to be very, very ugly. And it's going to be very, very sad. Um, and, and I just wonder if maybe, you know, no matter how they did that, you know, they were going to lose the narrative war um, because there's going to be so much collateral damage with what they have to do. Yes and no, I, and because I, I and the, then the no part about it for me is that, um, how to say this, we call them war crimes for a reason, right? It's not just because it's bad PR, it's because it is bad. And I, like I say, I get it. In an existential fight, it's you or it's me, there are no rules to that, right? There are no rules to that. There's no quarter, there's no, you know, negotiate. No, it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's you or it's me, and it is a fight to the death. That is what total war is. I say, I get it. But what I also get is that the, both the use of civilians by Hamas, that is bad. That is not, as in, as an evil bad. And the choice to bomb the shit out of the innocents to get at the bad guys behind them. Um, that's also bad inherently and intrinsically bad. Right. So, um, cause I, I get it. And in a total war situation, I, I, I understand that rationale. But as an outsider looking at this, I, I think that total war was a choice by Israel. And, um, I say it's an understandable choice, but it's a choice with consequences for the soul of the protagonist of that total war in exactly the same way the dropping of the Nagasaki bomb was a choice exactly the same way that, you know, bombing civilian populations is always a choice. It's, um, 
It's a damning choice in many respects. I want to just ask you, you mentioned earlier about the other parties involved here in sort of setting their own narratives. You mentioned China and mm -hmm. Russia. And, you know, I, I've got a tweet in front of me you would put up where, you know, someone pointed out that Baidu Maps no longer has Israel on it. Um, so I'm wondering, like, I can't think as someone who doesn't know a lot about this, I can't think what China is gaining by taking Israel off of a map like that. I mean, can, can you just talk about what what that decision is and why they would do that? Sure. And I, I, I put this, I tweeted this because I found it as a very, as a fascinating example of the larger topic to talk about, which is the, the war that is taking place now and has been for a couple of years now in narrative world. By taking the name Israel off the map, you were saying that Israel does not exist. Right. So, so what you were doing is you are advocating, you know, for Israel not having that right to exist. You are joining the existential fray. And you're not doing overtly, right? You're not, this is what I mean about how uh, modern propaganda works. It's not, oh, we're going to give speeches saying Israel doesn't have a right to exist. What we're going to do is we are going to provide support, encouragement, knowledge, tools for useful factions in our strategic adversaries, like the United States, to help them make the claim that Israel has no right to exist which goes directly against, of course, U.S. policy and creates schisms in the United States. The why for China and Russia to support the Palestinian cause is to create divisions within the United States, period, full stop. The tools that they use to do that are the use of their English language uh, media operations, I've talked about this before in this podcast, to start little snowballs rolling down the hill, to use language that is then adopted by, let's call them the useful, well, there's supposedly what Lenin called them, the useful idiots. <laughs> right? United uh, States did the same thing. Trust me. I, I mean, all countries make these sort of efforts both domestically and internationally. The difference is that the Western media system is so incredibly open, a hundred times more open, a thousand times more open than the Chinese or the Russian media system, that it works. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story. Uh, this happened to me, actually this is maybe, I don't know, maybe it was pre-2016. Uh, uh, so it's gotta be probably about 10 years or so now. And a business friend of mine, uh, you know, we'd worked together on some projects or the like, I knew him, he'd been hired by some people that I admired and like, you know, I said, Hey, yeah, Ben, I'm, uh, there's this, uh, media company, uh, 
I've been giving some interviews, doing some talks with them. I think you'd really like to talk with them. It's uh, RT. RT. Look about RT.com. But, oh, what, what do you like about it? So, well, they're very thoughtful and they let you tell your story. And it's not, um, you know, I, I, I don't get the feeling like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to, you know, say what I want to say. I don't feel like I'm, you know, part of, you know, it's not like giving a talk at CNBC where they say, okay, I want you to come in and take this position and I want you to come in and take that position and you guys debate, right? Which is the way all these, you know, shows work. Let's debate this. Now they come in and we talk, it's really good conversations. I wonder if they'd like to talk to you. I asked them and they said they'd love to see you. And uh, they pay a little bit too. So, oh. so I'll look up RT. RT, of course, is uh, Russia Today. And you have a conversation with them. And, of course, the question is, well, you know, aren't you part of, you know, the Russian government? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No. We've got nothing to do with the Russian government. Nothing at all. Come on, boy. You know, you know we'll have a, a conversation, you know, and uh, we'll let you get even. We've read your work. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Really like what you had to say on this topic. And they, yeah, they had read my work. And I was so flattered. And it just, oh, wow. They really want to hear what I have to say. Oh, there's a little bit of money. And something to the stage, I'm not sure what it was, but something was in the back of my head saying, this is a mistake, right? Because, because once you, you know, the internet is forever, right? And, 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 and I was saying, Russia today, I, they sound legit. They say they have nothing to do with Russia, but I don't think I want to do it. I can't put my finger on it. Why I didn't do it. And thank God I didn't. Right. Because of course they're not independent. Right. And, 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 and of course they, 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 they get you in, they get you in. This is how the game works. Right. And again, you want to this, right. But this is the way the game works. It, it, it's presented to you as you're so smart and we really like what you've had to say. Why don't you sit down? We'd just like to hear more from you. This is how the influence works. Right. And it's, it is the, the use of, I said, it's, it's not fiery speeches and old fashioned, what we think of as propaganda. It's using fiat news, it's using language that says, oh, that seems reasonable. Oh, they think I'm so smart. I will lend my voice to them as well. This is how it works, guys. I'm curious, what would have, I wonder if you did it what would have happened? I mean, would they have, it would have gotten cut cut up into pieces to try to, you know, something that supported what they were saying and it would have nope. been published that way, something like that? Nope, 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 not, not in the least. If they would have, they would have published, because I've seen it, what they've done with other people. People, the three of us know, have been on RT and have, you know, given interviews and talks and had stuff published. 
and they're very good, right? Here's the topic. You have the conversation. Forever and ever, though, you were giving, you were being interviewed on Russia Today. Whenever something happens in the world, you'd get a call. Hey, really enjoyed having you on the other day. Why don't you come in and talk about X, Y, and Z? I bet you've got something really interesting to say. And there's a little money in it, too. So, there's nothing overt, right? It's not, you know, say what we want you to say, and, you know, we'll give you this, this money. And it's like, it's just, you become part of their fabric. And once you are, you realize you can never undo that. You can never undo it, and you'll always be associated with them, and you'll always, people will always want to I wonder what the connection really is. That link between influence and credibility, like that's, that's really kind of wild in a story like that, because it forever attaches itself to your credibility. And that's kind of like a blown out portion of what we're seeing right now, right? We're seeing this like blown out manifestation of credibility based on remember that time when. Remember that time when. Guarding your authenticity against, I'm going to call it accusations or suspicions, but just the because and it is more than just the appearance of of being cozy with state actors uh, or corporate actors. Man, it's such a it's such a fragile thing to preserve that, and it's so easy because you don't you don't think you're breaking anyone's trust, and you're not. You just get pulled in. They are, they are trading on your authenticity and linking you to their platform. And this, you know, man, you've got, it's, it's in every field, right? It is the notion of selling out, right? It's the notion of, oh, you know, he's a spokesperson for them or associated with these other people. It's, um, I do find, though, that government actors are the most insidious of all of them. They're the best at it. They're the best at it. This is what spycraft is. I mean, it sounds funny to say, you know, this is the spy game, but it is. Right? And um, I think what we're seeing both in, you know, when you come out and you see that the the experts, right, who CNN would bring in on something and you find out that, well, actually, they've been basically a tool for, you know, some group <laughs> for a long time. This is how it all happens. Right? It's, just, it, it's so interesting because it's in... When you said, like, think about it across other fields. So you think about like your personal career. Like I've personally reinvented myself several times professionally. I think sure. we've all had 
different versions of that. Um, Jack, I know what you went through and just the iterations of your company. And it's, there's like, there's no re there's no reinvention without new trust via the relationships that you have around you. And when we think about that at the state level, that you can't reinvent yourself without new trust established in those new relationships, that's tumultuous. It's happening with political parties too, right? Big time. It's happening with every organization where there's a very conscious effort to trap you. Right. And it, and it seems so nice and so easy. Oh, I'm just going to dip a toe over here. They like me. It's always done out of flattery and, oh, they just want to hear your opinion. And there's a little money in it too. Yeah, there's a, there's a little piece of it. Right. And, and, and by a little bit of money, I mean a little bit of money, like, oh yeah, well, we'll, we'll get a car to, you know, take you home. After the, after the, I mean, I mean, crazy small amounts of money, but this is how politicians get wrapped up. One of the things that's always been amazing to me is how cheap it is to buy politicians because one of these guys like, you know, especially like city and state officials, it's, it's not like you're giving them enormous amounts of money. It's like, yeah, I know a guy who will build an addition onto your, you know, your, your house or yeah, well, uh. We'll, we'll, we'll pay for, you know, the, the, the car payments on this, on this car we're leasing. It's crazy small amounts of money, but this is how people end up being bought over time. It's in, the, uh, in behavioral finance, there's that whole, like I. I've always thought about the connection, like the through line from this of the endowment effect. Do you guys remember the, what that one is? Oh, sure. Tell us, Matt. So I, I give you something and the, the, I think the famous experiment is basically they do like an auction in a classroom. Correct yep. me if you've taught this one. They do the auction in the classroom and basically people get different things. And then once you have it, how do you price the thing that you now just either got for free or just one? And it's like, they give you a coffee mug. When they hand it to you, you're like, oh, cool, a coffee mug. And they're like, how much will you sell it for? And you're like, well, now it's worth something depending on right. what the market. Now it's worth something. What the market tells me. And that's like an interesting thing to observe and to talk about. But then we see it manifest in all these levels where, and I'm not going to say the names or what the story was, but I remember a, a drama when I was living in Connecticut over, it was just that. It was like somebody got a carpet put in their living room. And like, as you pulled back, like the layers and layers and layers, you're like, John Rowland, the governor of Connecticut was, you know, bandied about as a potential presidential candidate. And he's undone, I think over, yeah, rugs and an addition to their summer house. Like just penny any stuff, but this is how it happens. This is how it happens. And once you take that little bit, you're. You're connected. You're connected. You'll never get unconnected. It's amazing it works because, you know, you'd think John Rowland or whoever at that moment in time would see the big picture and see like, this is not a big deal relative to what I'm going to lose, but you don't. Like when you're in that moment, you probably don't see it that way. Yeah. Not only do you not see it, you think, well, I mean, of course this makes sense. 
right? It's just a favor, right? Or in the case with RT or, you know, or commercial U.S. organization, right? That everyone was always playing on reputation and authenticity. And you don't realize you're squandering it until you want to spend it for something you really believe in. And then you realize you can't. And that to me, we talked about this last time, that to me is the consequence of, for example, the New York Times and the LA Times and the BBC squandering their authenticity on reporting the war is that why, why, why am I going to believe you when you're calling an election? It's the Israel case is interesting too. I mean, they're, they're not squandering. They've made a conscious decision to not care because they've made the choice to enter total war. And there will be, you know, real consequences, not just in foreign policy and Israel's relationships with other countries, not just in Israel's ability to prosecute a conflict that I think is very likely to spread onto the West Bank, other places, uh, but also for what the consequences it has for you know, your own identity. That idea. Are we the baddies? Um, when you enter a situation of total war, when you make that choice, you say, well, you know, bad and good, it makes no more difference now. This is a fight to the death for existence. And that perception is exactly what countries like China try to encourage by showing a map that no longer has the name Israel on it. I tell you guys, one thing that I've learned is that these words and these names matter a lot because if we don't have the words for something, we can't think it. And if we are presented with the words and names for something, we think it a lot. So I, I see it happening. Like I say, I get it. And yet. These are, uh, these are soul destroying choices. Well, Jack, I got, I got, uh, I got to bring this up. I know you have a question that you think is a dumb question, but I'm going to insist right now after that little riff about reputation and authenticity, <laughs> that this is anything but a dumb question today. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at it from, from the email we traded earlier. Can you please ask this question? And Ben, can I beg of you to please answer this with a little bit of a nod to the reputation and authenticity comment you just made. Will there? Yeah. You know, we should, we should mention, you know, we're going to going forward in the podcast, we're going to have some sections here and, you know, people who are watching, will see them across the bottom of the screen. And, you know, we end up getting in these interesting discussions and we end up in section one the whole time, but going forward, we're going to make sure to cover the rest of these sections. So people will be able to track our progress across the bottom. Um, and I guess one of the sections is going to be called Jack's dumb question. And the reason for that is, you know, I, I'm not as knowledgeable as you guys are on these issues. And I'm always thinking when I'm asking my questions throughout the podcast, I'm like, oh, is that a dumb question? 
And you know, if I say, if I call it Jack's dumb question, now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now I can ask Ben whatever I want, or I could ask Matt whatever I want. And, and I've got my cover now. So, so this is, this is going to be one of the sections going forward. And, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about that I tried to ask in one of our other podcasts, when we ran out of time is, is this idea of the skills that get elected, someone elected president of the United States and the skills that make you good at being the president of the United States. And it seems to me like the overlap between those two, you know, the Venn diagram between the two of them might not have that much overlap. And I wanted to ask you, Ben, like what you think about that? Like, what do you think about in terms of the skills someone needs to be get elected and then the skills they need to be good at it? Like, is there overlap between those two or are they just really, really separated? I actually think there are more overlap than they've ever been. And uh, the reason I say that is that getting elected means successfully telling a story, being a good storyteller. Um, What defines, I'm convinced, a good president, an effective president, is their ability while in office to tell a good story, a motivating story. So it's interesting, Jack. I, I, I get your point. It's not a dumb question at all because we'd like to think that there are massive differences. We'd like to think that, oh, as the commander-in-chief, as the head of the executive branch, by golly, I want a competent executive there. Right? I want an effective commander there. It, you know, God, you, you guys know I love the Godfather movies and can quote all of them had nauseam my family would promise, but there's the great scene where Tom, their brother, Tom, stepbrother, Tom, is the consigliere, the advisor to the family. And there's this great scene where he's told, you're not a wartime consigliere. In times of real crisis, I want a president who is a fantastic executive, a commander to be commander in chief. Absolutely. That's why I was fundamentally so disappointed with, uh, Obama, uh, as a president, you know, I, yeah, it was a once in a hundred year chance. I thought to fundamentally change the relationship between Wall Street finance and us. And I think thought that was terribly squandered, terribly squandered opportunity in exchange for telling a story. Um, I think Israel has decided that they don't care about telling a story anymore with this total war. It's a wartime consigliere. The stories to tell are then the things to accomplish are ones of successful prosecution of the war as defined by eliminating every Hamas person. And I think, I think that's the end of the United States. I think, I think if the United States, if we go, I think we're going over the next few years, 
will want to have somebody who's competent. But you ask me now what the overlap is, what the role of the president is to tell a good story. That's how we evaluate whether a president's effective or not. It's interesting. It's, it's been a learning process for me too, because I, I sort of asked you the same question on our other podcast about CEOs and it's the same answer. Like it's I've always thought answer. like as the fundamental guy, I'm like Mark Benioff making up adjusted EBITDA for these 14 things. Like that's not the behavior of a good CEO, but the reality is Mark Benioff has done an outstanding job of setting the narrative and keeping the stock price up with whatever he's doing. So, I mean, that is the definition of a good CEO to some extent, right? Vice versa with CEOs that can't tell a good story to save their lives. Stock doesn't, stock doesn't work. And so, you know, what do you want from your CEO? You're going to make you money. Uh, as a fractional ownership share of, you know, Salesforce, Mark Enioff's most effective CEO, I think, in a generation. God help us. So uh, another section we're going to add here is, is we're going to pick a, a tweet every week and have you sort of react to it um, and help us analyze it. We're going to call it the tweet of the week. And um, in, one I picked up on this week because it's been really surprising to me is one of the things that's been really surprising to me is right now there are American hostages in Gaza um, being held by Hamas. And we always ask you the question on this podcast, why am I reading this now? But you asked the opposite question in your tweet here, which is something I've been curious about too, which is why am I not reading this now? It seems like that is really not in the news at all. And I would think that would be a national front page story. So do you have any thoughts on why that is? Absolutely. I think it's because the plan or the assumption is that the hostages will be killed. Right. This, this, again, this is the total war scenario. That if you're engaged in total war, those hostages are already casualties of that war. And if you've made the decision that you're going to bomb a refugee camp to get at the military combatants, the rapists and the murderers, the evil men who I absolutely believe should just, you know, all have bullets put in their head. You're, you're going to stop because they've got a couple of those hostages hidden there in the tunnels and are threatening to, you know, this isn't a movie anymore, right? It's not, it's not a movie where the bad guy, you know, is holding the hostage says, put down your gun. And the good guy says, oh, okay, don't, don't, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Here, I'll put down my gun. And then they've got some great other plan, you know, to, you know, save the day. This isn't that. This is like that. So anyway, I, I think that's the reason I, you know, there, there are all sorts of, you know, why don't we hear about the Palestinian Americans? I think there are I don't know, 500 or so of them who can't get out uh, because Egypt's not letting them out. That, you know, it's like, but you know what? Tell them that story doesn't benefit anyone, right? It doesn't benefit the U.S. government to call out the Egyptian government and say, oh, our people aren't getting out. You're just, you know, making the Egyptian government angry for, for no reason. It doesn't do any good. It doesn't follow the storyline for 
any of the media who wants to focus on, you know, the, the, the war fighting and that it's, that it's Israel's fault because it's not. So, I mean, yeah, you're not reading these stories because it doesn't benefit anyone to read these stories. Yeah, it's, it's just so, I mean, it, on a human level, it's just so sad in many ways, like watching what's going on and, you know, obviously the American hostage, hostages and the innocent Palestinians and the innocent Israelis and, you know, but, but you're right. I mean, ultimately it, it comes down to incentives, I guess, and who, who has an incentive to tell these stories. And if the people that have the power to tell these stories don't have an incentive to tell them, then they don't get told. Yeah. And people often think that when, I, when we talk about incentives, we're talking about money and it's not, that's not really it. It's that, it's that. These stories, if you ran with them, would be duds. Nobody would pay attention to them because it doesn't fit the stories we're already telling in our heads on either side. So there's, there, there's, there's nothing to be gained from telling the story in terms of engagement or people, you know, you tell the story and people go, uh-huh, and then just move on. That's not what you want with a story. You want people to say, oh, tell me more. Nobody's going to be saying, tell me more with these stories. And so that's why they don't get told. So uh, I think we've reached the point in the podcast, uh, which is my favorite part, where, where Matt gets to brighten things up a little bit with, uh, with Matt's cult. Yeah, 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 my favorite part too. <laughs> and I can just say, Matt, I heard so many positive things about the Mary Morris thing last week. Like, you know, that, that was just an amazing story. And so I'm sure you've got another one. So uh, go ahead. Let us know what you got. I'm running on full just serendipity for in a world that's trying to just destroy me every time I open up the app on my phone. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got to ask you, I'm sure you know of this artist, but uh, have you guys seen this book yet? This is the new Sly Stallone or uh, the new Sly Stone memoir, not Sly Stallone. We might get one of those. Have you, are, you, are you aware that this exists? Have you seen that? I, I, I did not that existed. I, yeah. I did not either. Holy crap. Optimism. A lot of sadness too. The guys had some struggles and, uh, I can't believe it's taken me this long to fully dive into this person's life. Cause there's so little on there beyond this title of this. I got to show you this first. So like slip covers, which hardcover first editions, I want you to notice this. Can you see what the coloring of this book is? Is it black on black? This is dead black on black everywhere yeah. on this, on this, on the actual cover of this book. I got to tell you something that he says about it. And I don't expect you to, Ben, maybe you remember this, Jack. I don't know about you. Uh, Sly and the Family Stone album, there's a riot going on. It had a, it had an American flag cover on it. Do you have any recollection of this cover? I'm not, I'm putting you guys on the spot with this. I, I don't. So, I, I mean, I think that, you know, Jack's a little younger than me. So, so, so I, I've got a little bit of advantage here for whenever it comes to, to Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. So on that, and this is like the kind of stuff that's in this book, he actually talks about the art direction for that album cover. And there's a riots going on, which is basically a response to a song that ends up engendering or uh, making the coasters who the coasters are and Marvit and Gaze, what's going on. And Sly's <laughs> whole comment was the riot going on is actually inside of ourself, which is why track six on the album is basically empty space with the song name. There's a riot going on. And there's nothing that plays, but the black on black. And he explains in that because what he did is he took the American flag, he strips out the color. So it's just black and white and red. 
And let me see if I can find, okay, I got to read this to you because I'm looking at this cover and then, you know, until you get to page 120 and he says, explaining the cover art for the album, white was the absence of any color. Black was the presence of all colors. I took out the blue and left the red, which was humanity and unity, blood in the veins of us all. I also wanted to do something about the stars. Stars blinked on and off. You had to go looking for them. I wanted to change them to suns, which come looking for you. The black on this cover is the presence of all colors. And the other thing that I never had heard or saw put so eloquently, do you know why they named it Sly and the Family Stone? More no idea. I'm I've always been Okay. So they have this whole debate. They're recording the stuff. They're all together. Then at some point it landed. Sly and the Family Stone. The band had a concept. You ready? For, this is your widening gyre moment. This is for you, Ben. The band had a concept. White and black together. Male and female both. And women not just singing but playing instruments. That was a big deal back then. And it was a big deal on purpose. If we're talking about optimism, if we're talking about a winding gyre, things that stand at odds, black and white, male and female, all the roles that we're supposed to play, start a band with all of them. There's all the critical distance you need. Start the band. Find the people with different voices and people's voices that you want to raise. Get them all in a room together. That's what you do. You make music together and you don't be afraid to put them together and you don't be afraid to do it on purpose. That's awesome. You know, Matt, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, uh, and yours actually, but, uh, he was, we we're talking about making a band, not playing music. So I don't, I mean, not really, I don't, anyway, I can't play bad. He was talking about, you know, what he loves to do is he likes to play. He's the part of the rhythm section. He plays bass. And he really loves that. You know, what a bass does, you know, what the rhythm section does in a band. I'm not that, right? I'm a I'm the lead. I like being out in front on stage, right? That that's that's my thing. And I and I think a lot of times about whether it's Epsilon theory or, or putting together a website. It's like putting together a band, right? Band is not just for making music or that, at least that's not how I'm just taking your comment right there. That a band is taking different roles, presenting them to the world in the way that you think is important to present them. And making music together, which sometimes isn't just actual music, that can be words, it can be a company, it can be a project, it can be a lot of things. Individuals with shared purpose on purpose is probably the most optimistic thing in that's why we're gathered. That's why... I know which friend we're talking about. I know what the family inside of the Epsilon forum often feels like, as I've gotten to yeah. know a number of these people over the years. And that getting together with a purpose on purpose to make something, to sing something, to dance something, to whatever it is, like that's, so long as we can do that, we can't, we have to have optimism. Love that.
Matt, you've done it again, my friend. You've done it again. Thank you. Yeah, I was I, I was going to go to some other sections here, but I think it's inconceivable yeah. we would ever do another section after Matt does one of these. So well, I think that is always going to be the end of the road. Summarize us still here. We'll do the Matt summary, but Mary Hicks goes on that. All right. Let's, yeah, let's, I think so. Let's keep, well, I'm going to take us back down for a second, but I promise to end on a good note. So, Ben, we talked at the beginning about Napoleon and this total war concept. I think mm -hmm. this is so important to, to remember. I think you got to go back in history and study this stuff because understanding when it's no longer strategic interaction, and that's what we're facing right now, both in the positioning that Ham Hamas has chosen to take, uh, also in the choices that Israel's perhaps been forced to make and why it feels so ugly. This is Napoleonic in every sense of the word. Likewise, with China taking Israel off the map, you said entering the existential fray, and I think that's it. It's because words and language matter. And the note I made to myself is it's, it's basically like all this stuff is always people passing notes to their friends. It's like in class. China's passing a note to their friends and it's mischievous. And you have to look at the brokering of these stories as the passing of notes to friends and choose to see the notes because, yeah, sometimes they're nefarious on purpose. We got into a conversation about how there's no reinvention without new trust from new versions of our relationships. Uh, ben, you made that comment about it's not a wartime consigliere. If you're going to reinvent, if you're going to form new trust and new relationships, that's tough. And that's why we're here talking about narrative games and game theory. And the understanding of this is so important because we can see it. Jack, in your question, you won't read it until it matters was part of Ben's answer. And that unless it's going to require somebody to take the action, a dominant actor, as we framed out to take action, you're not going to see a story about it. And that's Friggin' heartbreaking. Now, I promised a positive note. Right after you said about Napoleon Bonaparte and Total War, my heart was warmed a little and I probably laughed. So if you rewind and it looks like I'm laughing insensitively, it's because I remembered the other most important Napoleon in history, which is Napoleon Dynamite. Nice. And what he taught us was that even when it looks at face value like everybody's your enemy, you got to embrace your weirdness. You can get up there and do your weird little dance and you can unite a whole room or get your friend elected for class president or whatever else just by being willing to, what Sly said, start a band with a purpose on purpose. On purpose. Vote for Carlos. I love it. <laughs> and I, I, I will say, Matt, uh, you know, so, some podcasts out there, as I put on Twitter the other day, claim they have the world's greatest moderator that will name nameless. Will remain nameless, but uh, we definitely have the world's greatest summarizer. Um, that was really awesome. Bear that title. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys, for joining us. We'll see you next time on Breaking News. Like, subscribe, ask more questions. We do have a building pile of mailbag stuff, so we're going to be doing one of those episodes again soon, too. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching Breaking News so more people can find our show. If you know another clear-eyed and full-hearted individual, why not share this episode with them too? Like we said at the top, the media is making us tick, and it's our job to talk. Follow the headlines at fiatnews.com. Follow Ben at epsilontheory.com and at epsilontheory on Twitter. Follow Jack at validiacapital.com 
and at Practical Quant on Twitter. Follow Matt at sunpointinvestments.com, cultishcreative.com, and at cultishcreative on Twitter. <laughs>